On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. The technologist and social media influencer Anil Dash has written this of the industry he helped create. We fancy ourselves outlaws while we shape laws and consider ourselves disruptive without sufficient consideration for the people and institutions we disrupt. We have to do better, and we will. Anil Dash has been an early vocal activist for moral imagination in the digital sphere, including advocating for metrics that encourage generative behaviors online. This has become a galvanizing discussion since the 2016 presidential election. What is arguably the most powerful industry in human history has entered the lives of most people on Earth with openly world-changing ambitions, but without a deliberate process of ethics, inclusivity, and accountability. With Anil Dash, we explore this unprecedented power, the learning curves we're on, and how we can all contribute to the humane potential of technology in this moment we inhabit. We're still sounding our way through this incorporation of technology into our lives. And, you know, it always does come down to what are our values and what do we care about and what are the things we think are meaningful. And then using that as a filter to understand and control and make decisions around these new technologies. And um, that's part of the reckoning I'd ask everybody who's not in technology to have is to raise that flag, right? At the time when somebody says, you got to try this new app, you got to use this new tool, think through what are the implications of One, me using this, but two, if everybody does. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Anil Dash in a public event at the Avalon Theater in Easton, Maryland. We were there at the invitation of the Aspen Institute's Y Fellows and the Dock Street Foundation. A long, long time ago when we set the title for tonight, it was... Emerging Technologies and Old-Fashioned physics, uh, old fashioned Civics. <laughs> and I was thinking today that we should rename it Emerging Technologies and Their Interaction with Emerging Politics and the Civics We Have. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'll, the I'll Civics We Need. I'll take it. <laughs> okay, so that's where we're going to go. Okay, so something you're known for um, inside your industry in Silicon Valley is um, knowing how systems work. And you said you're almost kind of obsessed about this. Whether it's the way people adopt new technologies or the ways governments regulate markets or the ways new ideas spring up in popular culture. So, uh, so I'm curious, if you, how do you trace that? Where, did, where does that come from in you? Or when did, you, when did it surface? Um, you know, I, I got um, my first computer in the household. We had a Commodore computer when I was five years old. My father brought home for us to tinker on. And um, so I started coding when I was five. And... My, as my son has done too, it's like, well, these things must be contagious. <laughs> and uh, what, what became, you know, my impression of what a computer was, was a tool you used to create and not to consume. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. influenced my view of what everything else was. Right. And through that lens, I came to understand that newspapers were that, that um, the, you know, low fidelity uh, homemade broadcasts that sort of presaged YouTube that people were doing on public access was that same thing. That all these things, are, that hip-hop music, which I loved, 
was people taking the tools they had and using technology in new ways to express themselves. And that was the lens that sort of revealed the whole rest of the world, or at least where the media and entertainment and communications world was headed. Also, uh, you are a, a, a critic on the inside, right? You were pointing out contradictions and flaws in the tech industry at this stage. And I think that you know, it's good for us all to step back and realize this has happened so quickly. And unfortunately, we're, we're not doing the work of discernment in advance. We're doing it mm-hmm. after the fact, which is how humans tend to function. <laughs> um, right? So you say no, nobody in your industry is saying, I'm setting out to make the patriarchy worse. I'm setting out to, I'm saying I'm a rebel. I, I, but I real, take it back. Some are now. Some are. So that's the innovation <laughs> right, that we okay. have. We you have know, broken the seal on that. They're now. not that's saying great. I'm being a rebel, but but I'm acting like a robber baron. That's another way you've talked about it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, they're, they're saying I'm making a tool, mm-hmm. and you're saying that's not good enough anymore. Yeah, you know, we bake our values into the choices we make when we design these tools. And the sort of turning point in my career uh, about a dozen years ago was I was building some of the early um, blogging and social media tools. And the, the tools that uh, my friends and I built were used to publish and launch, you know, Gawker and Huffington Post and many of these early blogs that, you know, became sort of seminal to the medium. And um, it was interesting because there were hints all along that the, the choices we made in like on a whiteboard in our meeting room had implications. So, for example, there's a box you type in, just like when you write an email, you know, the box you type in when you write a message and we would make the box bigger um, in the publishing tool and the posts on Gawker and on Huffington Post would get longer. Right, mm, and right. we see this today, where anybody who's used Instagram, you see yourself, you see people framing their photo to be square because it's going to be shared in a square format, even though the phone itself can take, you know, a rectangular photo, and every other photo over the last century has been a certain other shape, and here we are making this adjustment. And so I never connected the dots that well, we have complete control over exactly how many words a journalist uses in writing a story by changing things that are arbitrary variables for us, and yet we would not connect the dots all the way through into well the choices we make about how communities work online, how people respond to each other, mm-hmm. how accountable they are to each other, those would have social impacts too. Mm-hmm. But at that point, suddenly we would divest ourselves of responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's interesting this moment we inhabit. You know, we, we now say, and I, I think this is true, that we have a fifth estate as well as a fourth estate. Mm. This new sphere, which is public life, uh, whether it's set out to be or not, which is highly influential and has been incredibly influential in a presidential election now. Yeah. Um, as a journalist, I see a lot of actually consonance between this kind of moral challenge that tech, not tech has and the moral challenge that journalism has. And also, they got all also mixed up and intertwined yeah, in this yeah. election. But I think the, the notion that this is what we do, we tell the news. Mm-hmm. We report what happened today. Mm-hmm. This is the form we use. Um, but when it colludes with technology, mm-hmm. and when you see the tools themselves formed the craft, right? I mean, the 24-7 news yeah. cycle yeah. itself created the way journalism was functioning, mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, not to be glib, but it's even worse than you describe. Um, I think the, <laughs> the thing that I've seen in particular in online media was 
the world into which we started creating the social media tools around the, around the turn of the century, it makes me sound like I'm ancient, yeah. um, was, I am ancient, the, the, um, the thing that jumped out to me was, it was not centralized. There were, everybody had an individual site, and what happened in short order, in about half a decade, um, was, you know, Google became the front door to all the content. You would go through one search engine and one news site, and that would be your entry point, more or less. And, uh, you know, one or two advertising platforms sort of took over, Facebook, yeah. Google. And the people designing the products are well-intentioned. They, they're sincere in saying, so I'll tell you what, we'll just make it easy. We'll bring the content from all these different publishers, New York Times, BuzzFeed, and we'll put it all onto the Facebook platform or onto the Google platform and bring it, you know, in, in, inside our walls and make it fast and easy for everybody to browse on their phones. Now, incidentally, what happens with that is we're just going to remove all those other advertising and clutter things that are happening from all those companies that aren't Facebook or Google. You know, so you can say we have our own staff of journalists and our own writers and they're out there reporting and they're doing everything and we are the, you know, the masters of our own destiny. Um, but I don't think that the publishers understand the trade-off they're making. And it's because of the social positioning of technology is neutral. Right, so like, well, we're a neutral platform anybody can publish on. And then when you get to the current state of affairs, which is um, when you sell advertising, you are brokering attention. And so something that draws more attention and has more emotional appeal will be more successful and more lucrative. Then you say, well, some of the things that are most attention-getting aren't true. The Facebook fake news right. that we're hearing about now. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, the Facebook fake news... Um, I have to say, I thought it was just astonishing that Twitter played a role in the in a presidential election the way it did. I just I, I didn't I don't know who would have saw that coming. Um, and then of course the catastrophe of polling and the yeah. fact that you had algorithms, but people weren't making. I think it's a perfect example. And mm -hmm. I you know I got to watch Twitter from before its public launch um, and knew and knew the founders and the, and a lot of the you know the leadership very well. Um, Less so, as there's been a lot of regime change there. Um, regime and change. That's, I mean. <laughs> that's to your but, point. But, but, These but, are now titans. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, they were very vocal about their role in Arab Spring. Yes. They were very vocal about how everybody in, in Tahrir Square is using Twitter. Right. And um, when they at least nominally liked the results, then Twitter was taking the credit. And when they don't like the results, Twitter's a neutral tool, <laughs> right? And I've been that guy. Like, I'm not pointing fingers. Mm -hmm. But we did learn that lesson. And then if you look at every other professional discipline, you look at somebody goes to law school, somebody goes to business school, journalism school, medical school, every single one of those disciplines has a professional society that sets standards. And if you don't meet them, you can be disbarred. You can lose your medical license. This is an expectation about what you're supposed to do. And in the educational process, there's an extensive ethical curriculum. The bridge has to stay up, it can't fall down. Uh, you know, you have a historical tradition where in medicine, they're going back to Hippocrates and in law, you're like talking about English common law that happened centuries ago. And then in computer science, they're sort of radically anti-historical, right? Not even ahistorical, just like there is nothing before now. Like we refuse to see like there is no before time and there is zero ethical curriculum. You can get a, you know, top of the line, high, you know, the highest credential computer science degree from the most august institutions with essentially having had zero ethics training. 
And that is, in fact, the most likely path to getting funded as a successful startup in Silicon Valley. Is that, do you think that's part, partly because, as we say, it, it's such a young field, mm-hmm. but then it's Some of it so is we haven't had centuries to mature. achieve this disproportionate authority and power. That's, that's right. I mean, the yeah. difference is in the centuries... I haven't thought of it as a discipline yet. Right, right. In the centuries over which engineering was maturing or that medicine was maturing, they worked it out, right? There were a yeah. lot of like, yeah. you know, well, that, that's not actually medicine. That's just butchery. Let's clean that up, mm-hmm. right? But, mm-hmm. but at mm-hmm. that time, they weren't the wealthiest industry in the history of the world, so they had some time to work. Right, right. And we didn't do that. Yeah. And we meanwhile amassed all of that power and all that wealth. And I think that's the the reckoning that we haven't come to. And the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. Um, I think we're going to really face a reckoning as the economic impacts of that get stronger, as the cultural impacts of that get stronger. The idea that the halo around tech as the good guys is going to sustain seems increasingly unlikely. Hmm. Um. I want to read something that um, Dana Boyd wrote that you recommended. Mm. Um, she's been on the show. She's fantastic. She's, she's another, incredible. you know, another person many people outside tech may not have heard of, but mm-hmm. she's a real uh, leader and a great thinker. So she wrote, um, and as I want to say before this again, I, th- I hold journalists accountable, and I think this exact same conversation has to happen among journalists mm. because there was a way, but they were, they, you know, you almost watched. You watched journalism not know how to... It was all so fast-breaking in the 2016 mm-hmm. election mm-hmm. Um, because something that you, so that you might morally want not to cover became news anyway. Mm-hmm. But still, I think there's a huge reckoning. But anyway, she wrote, I believe in data, but data itself has become a spectacle. Um, I cannot believe that it has become acceptable for media entities to throw around polling data without any critique of the limits of that data to produce fancy visualizations which suggest that numbers are magical information. As she said, in the tech sector, we imagined that decentralized networks would bring people together for a healthier democracy. And there's that idealism that I think is yeah. really was there and is there in journalism too. And then she says, we hung on to this belief even as we saw that this wasn't playing out. We built the structures for hate to flow along the same pathways as knowledge. But we kept hoping that this wasn't really happening. We aided and abetted the media's suicide. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I bet a a lot of you saw on election night um, on the New York Times homepage their animated live real-time data um, they had these needles waving back and forth on the meter, um, which I think is probably the single most stressful implementation of technology I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I, I always think of this actually with systems thinking in general in any institution. I always try to imagine the meeting, right? Backtrack a few months, a few, a few weeks to the whiteboard meeting and a bunch of people with the, you know, empty coffee cups sitting around sketching out what this thing is going to be. And somebody says, and it's probably a young guy, and he's probably a computer science grad, and he says, you know, we can get the data in real time. We can get, you know, polling data, and we can put it on the homepage, and it'll be incredibly compelling. And uh, if, you, if you look at the page that made up that New York Times homepage while they were doing that chart on election night, um, and there were these wild swings of the needle for a long while, for hours, um, it was literally swinging back and forth between Clinton and Trump um, in real, t- real time, what they called real time. <laughs> and if you look at the code of the page, um, that was all fake. The data only updated at most a few times a minute. 
the needle never stopped moving. And, um, but I could see that. And I don't, I, what percentage of people that went to that page that night could mm -hmm. see that? Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe 1% maximum. And it was so, one, it was causing undue stress to a lot of people. Yeah. Two, it was, as Dana said, making spectacle of data explicitly. Okay. Right? And, and the animation was not true. It was not real. And so what does it mean that there was a choice to put something false on their homepage when they are trying to decry all the falsity? And would they have allowed falsity from any other public-facing part of their organization mm -hmm. except the technologists? Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Anil Dash, the entrepreneur and activist for humane technology. Should we talk about Facebook, or is that like going down a rabbit hole? I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is it a billion people around the world? More than that. More than that. That's a, that is, you're right. That is just so many. And so, again, it's like, you know, I, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking, I don't usually have interviews where we talk about a company. Yeah. But this is more than just a company. This is a human potential yeah, that yeah. is right now embodied in Facebook. But who knows if Facebook will be around 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. But the capacity to, to have the attention of a billion people. Yeah. It's, um, it's profound. I think... Uh, when we were, when I started blogging in 1999. I was talking to people that were building the early social networking, social media tools. And uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine saying, you know, someday, well, the, at that time I started, I was like, there's like 50 or 100 blogs. And I'm like, I'm late, right? <laughs> like somebody's taking all the good ideas. Um, and then the other 100 million showed up. And I was like, maybe I was early. <laughs> And, and, yeah. and that was true with social networks was um, the first time I met Mark Zuckerberg, he came to visit the company I was working at in San Francisco. And uh, Facebook was, I don't know, six people. And they were at a couple colleges. And um, because they're in uncharted territory, unprecedented territory, it's hard to know when they're making good choices and just choices. And no one can anticipate the way that network effects play out at that scale because no one's ever done that before. Right. And I keep stumbling over one sort of anecdote. It's got two sides to it. Um, one is the ongoing and very um, important industry discussion we're having in tech around inclusion and diversity yeah. and who gets to participate and who gets to profit. And the Facebook's numbers look uh, essentially like most of the companies in Silicon Valley, which is to say in California, which you presumably know the demographics of, uh, they're regularly have the technical staff of these companies be less than 2% uh, black or less than 2% Latino workers, right? And 40% of Californians are right. Latino, right? So it's a, it's a huge, huge disconnect. And for many years, the conversation has been, well, the pipeline's not there and you don't have enough people graduating from CS programs. And the, the moment I started to realize that there was something really, truly amiss even beyond that was when you looked at the 
the marketing staff or the legal staff or the administration staff, the non-technical roles of these companies. Okay. And the same thing was true. Okay. So they didn't, they weren't in need of the same new pipeline. Right. You can't yeah. tell me there's no black lawyers in California. You can't tell me there's no Latina marketers in California, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's the first part of the, the Facebook story to me about their reckoning with who they are and who profits from what they do. And the second part was um, WhatsApp, which um, is incredibly popular, maybe the most popular messaging app in the world. Um, I use it to talk to my family in India. Most of the rest of the world uses it a lot more than the States. And Facebook understood its value because it was the thing that's used by the rest of the world. And uh, they bought it at the time when the team was maybe 20 people building WhatsApp. It was you know, a very, very small team. They bought WhatsApp for uh, when it ended up being over $20 billion, $22 billion when the deal closed. And, and a board seat for the founder. Uh, he's on the board of Facebook now. And he's a very smart guy, very incredible team. And the decision to make that purchase, even though Facebook's a publicly traded company and all these things, happened in about four or five days. So when Mark Zuckerberg cares about something and Facebook cares about something, mm-hmm. they can deploy 20 plus billion dollars in less than a week. That's the scale of what it looks like when they really want to move on something. Mm -hmm. And they really want to deploy their resources and commit to it. You've written a lot also about um, how echo chambers emerge from the algorithms. Mm. Uh, Do you you read Seth Godin? Do you follow him? Yeah. Yeah. So Seth Seth Godin is a kind of mentor to me and um, to a lot of good people. Mm. And um, he's he's been in tech like you a long time Mm -hmm. before it was what it is. and he wants to insist that uh, one thing that sets our generation, I'm, by which I mean all of us, apart from mm. previous generations of humans, is that we, that we can create our own tribes beyond bloodline and geography. Mm-hmm. That that is one thing that uh, technology makes possible for us. I just I want to okay. know how you um, do you do you also see that as something that this technology makes possible? Do you see this happening? And, and, and you know how do you think through how we navigate yeah. the danger of bubbles and then this amazing capacity this gives us to walk out of them. That was the thing that drew me to the, the, the sort of the internet era. Like, I liked computers, but for half of my life, the computer wasn't plugged into anything. You know, it was sort of this island. And right. then, and then it right. sort of woke up once it got connected to other people. It got conscious. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, I mean, I, it, it's hard to explain to, like, the young people I mentor in the tech industry now, like, that we had computers that didn't have the internet. <laughs> And they're like, what would yeah. you do with it? Right. Yeah. You know, like, I don't, what do you, yeah. what is, you just stare at it. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. a TV that doesn't have like an antenna or cable. Yeah. Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> you just like bask in the rays. And, um, and that's what we did. And, and so that, that was, um, I would say, far less than 10% of the people creating these tools today think that they should distinguish between the uses of, these social tools as to whether they're being used for constructive purposes or destructive purposes. And what they're afraid of is a lot of things. I think one is the, well, who are we to judge, right? We don't want to presume. And I'm like, you're not humble. Like the tech industry, (laughs) like the false modesty of the tech industry is the most ridiculous argument that they start with. 
Um, cause you know, at the same time, they're like, we're here to change the world. Right. Right. We're going to put right. rockets on Mars right. and make self-driving cars, but we don't want to presume too much. Right. right? Um, yep. and, and so the, that's the sort of like the starting point. And then they get into, it's really hard and it takes people. Right. And it's like, as it turns out, yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it takes yeah. human judgment and you have yeah. to, you have to say where you sit and you have to make a call and you have to make some people angry cause they didn't get to be jerks on your platform. I mean, and that's even stopping short of saying we are going to uh, encourage generative relationships, yes. Yes. right? Robust civics, you know, not mm-hmm. not just everybody being nice and banning right. bad voices, right. but something that's robust where there, where difference is being engaged or explicitly designing for good behavior. Yeah, I mean, you you've talked about sort of how we measure and what we measure. Yeah, and how. Um, and you've written a lot about, you have huge social media following, and you've written a lot about like, you know, what that means and what it doesn't mean, mm-hmm. um, you, really in a very searching way. You know, you've said, could we have metrics about how we're presenting, about whether we're listening, about whether we're mm-hmm. showing gratitude? Like, could we, could we decide some, and, and when we, we could do this with social psychology, right? We could use science that's yeah. out there about what makes for healthier, happier, lives that affect the world around them positively mm-hmm. and y- you're suggesting that we could azure that that these platforms could actually give us feedback on those things yeah you know for for years i was building a tool um with a, a friend of mine Gina Trapani. we actually built a company around it that didn't really succeed but that we had built this um tool that let you see really how you were interacting with people online and how often you congratulated somebody or thanked somebody um, how often you amplified the voice of somebody that had a, a smaller platform than you did. How often you, we, 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 we sort of conceptualized a lot of generative behaviors, a lot of positive behaviors, uh, a lot of sort of good civic behaviors. How many times you apologized and, um, and would just recognize it, give it back to people, show them this is what you did and this is how you're progressing and, and, um, gentle correctives about like, well, you've, um, talked about yourself a lot, right? Like how, what percentage what percentage of all the things you've shared on Facebook or Twitter were about yourself and you saying I versus somebody else? And and not prescriptive. We didn't say like don't do this. It's like if we hold up a mirror, what do you see? And what's your judgment about it? And um, we ended up with <laughs> not a very large base of users, but a very very dedicated base of users. I mean, the people that were using the tool um, I mean, the emails I got were incredible, and it was one of the things we'd spent a lot of time on was um, a look back. So, what were you doing a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and uh, and then you know the tricky things that come out, and we spent a ton of time thinking about, which I think is part of why Facebook and others who made similar features screwed it up even worse than we did. Was we would do things like mention somebody you had spoken to last a year ago. And say, you know, do you want, you know, at first it was like, do you want to get back in touch with Jim? You haven't talked to him in a year. And really quickly, before we even put it out in front of the users, we're like, we can't do that. It has to be, isn't it amazing how time flies, was how we described it. Because sometimes uh, somebody who did want to be reminded to get back in touch with that person, Mm -hmm. sometimes they hadn't spoken to them for a reason. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a lot of weight behind that. Sometimes the person had passed away. Hmm. You know, Facebook built a, like a year in review, look back, 
Yeah. And the first time you've seen this, and the first time it launched, um, an old friend of mine who's uh, who had lost his daughter uh, said this was the photo that got the most comments this year, and it was uh, after she had passed. You know, at the end of that year, when he's sort of just starting to process it, it put her image back in front of him, and um, it stayed with me for a long time because it was. Uh, eminently preventable. You know, and again, they mean well, and, and Facebook did respond and, you know, sent him a um, thoughtful apology, which I think was sincere. I don't, I'm not saying this is these are bad people doing bad things. I'm saying this yeah. is these are good people doing bad things. Mm-hmm. And um, with a really powerful, very unformed, in fact, very unformed tool. Yeah, and, and, and I, I have to think they could have anticipated it. And mm-hmm. I think there's going to be that over and over and over. There are a lot of those mistakes to make. Are you part of a larger conversation? Do you feel that this reckoning is happening or perhaps that this recent election will spur it on? Um, there is a larger industry conversation about inclusion and diversity. And I can tell it's working because it's starting to be co-opted. Right? So the... Every, every, every tech CEO is giving lip service to it, whether they, they're sincere or not. So I was like, okay, that's a mark of success to some degree. The, the idea about more thoughtful, ethical, humane technology, a lot of us care about. I think there is a, a groundswell, and I see this in the response to what I write, to what Dana Boyd writes, to what Eric Meyer, who was the father I was talking about earlier, he writes a lot of, a lot of people writing thoughtful work. But... What's telling to me, and what's been very instructive, is I've looked at some of these larger social movements and moral movements. Like I look at the success of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, and it's self-organizing. People can identify yeah. and be part of something larger than themselves without it being um, conducted by someone, right? And and so they can say, I'm I'm declaring a value, and in in the, in the shortness of a hashtag, you know, right, extraordinary you know, what my yeah. values are. And, and we don't have a hashtag. We don't have a name for a movement. We don't have a shorthand way of articulating, well, when I say this or that I support this, you know that it represents this larger idea of cult in culture. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I don't know how to get there. I, don't, I wouldn't presume that I can, you know, be part of creating that. But I think when it arises, all the people who have this latent intention about being thoughtful about what technology can be uh, will rally behind it. But I, I keep looking, I'm always like, where is the brash 23-year-old creator who scares the hell out of me, who makes me feel like I'm old and out of touch and I don't get it? And like, I know they're coming, right? I know that person's coming and I know they're going to have the galvanizing you know, name and idea for this to be able to coalesce it. But for, um, this, for this shaping technology to human purposes, shaping the technology enterprise. Yeah, I think for, for remaking the tech industry, for mm-hmm. reforming it around being more ethical and humane, I think this is one of the most important missions uh, around. I, I just think uh, because we have subsumed decision-making from media, from policy, from culture, from art, into the tech world, yeah. and we are influencing it. When we make the box bigger, the text gets bigger because we have that responsibility, then the urgency with which we have to address our moral failings is that much higher. 
You can listen again and share this conversation with Anil Dash through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the technologist Anil Dash, exploring the unprecedented power, the dangerous learning curves, and the humane potential of technology in this moment we inhabit. I spoke with him in a public event at the Avalon Theater in Easton, Maryland, at the invitation of the Aspen Institute's Y Fellows and the Dock Street Foundation. You've asked publicly... What is meaningful about all this time we spend online? What will we have to show for it? I think a lot of us are asking that question. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to be a computer scientist to ask that question. No. Helps if you're not. (laughs) I wonder how becoming a parent, you said your son is five now, right? Mm. Has intensified, shaped the way you're working with these questions, this kind of soul searching. Um. It's interesting. I, uh, so I've been blogging for, what, 17 years? It takes eight or nine years to get really good at it. And at 10 years in, I realized I was going to be doing it the rest of my life. This was years before my son was born. And I started to think about, if I have a kid someday, what would they see? Mm. Mm. Um, and almost immediately it changed things. You know, um, It made me grow up a lot real quick. And part of it was wanting to be worthy of my words living on. I mean, I think there's a real, there's a, actually a shocking ephemerality to what's happened on the internet. Um, most of the things that have ever been published on the internet are now gone. And that's a weird realization because it's a young medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I, I, wanna, I wanna fight for one, preserving my words and those of others. And two, I want to be worthy of preserving them. And. You know, we don't build the tools that way. And I think actually there's a very strong argument for tools that are ephemeral by design. I think having things that are designed to be short term and just disappear is great. And we should mm-hmm. not rush to capture everything. I mean, there's a weirdness to, you know, ordinary conversation being sort of preserved in stone too. Um, but some of this, some of the, what's there is meaningful and, and it's useful for reflection. I think that's been the most powerful tool for me is to go back at something I wrote five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and see what was right and what was wrong. Um, And it's different, at least from my perspective, than journaling or a diary would be. Right. Previously, you would have a diary, but it would still be in a closet, and no one else would ever have seen it or would ever see it. Well, yes, and there was also, you think, you know, you look at uh, any of you who've read the sort of, you know, letters between the founding fathers, they had a awareness that these would live on beyond them, right? So it's it's a um, mm-hmm. it's correspondence. It's nominally private, mm-hmm. but it's got a sort of winking eye to the fact that this will be having an audience after in their absence. Yeah, which is a really interesting form of writing, and I think it's that for me is not in the founding father sense, but in the how you write sense is very parallel to me because um, I write generally from a very personal place. I'm on my own and I'm not, you know, I'm in a room on my own and there's no one around it. Um, but with the idea that the sort of shadow that it casts, a million people could see. So my children are right now 18 and 22. And even in those four years, you know, there was such an acceleration. Yeah. And it was interesting also 
in terms of the platforms that they and their friends use completely totally shifted. Totally different tools, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm actually, I find myself being really grateful that, that I'm not uh, parenting. So I was, I was st- we were still in that window where I could say, no, you will not have a, an iPhone until you're 14 or something, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. just, I don't think you can do anymore, right? And no. they were, so they were already kind of formed before all the technology entered their lives. And I know it's changed so much now in the meantime, mm-hmm. and you have a five-year-old. I mean, I wonder, how are you thinking about that question? We, we don't have a very intelligent cultural conversation about how kids engage with technology at no, all. No, um, I think... It's like a guinea pig generation. Yeah, well, it's also... Um, I always think of the concept of screen time. Anyone with young kids has heard this, right? They're like, wow, do you limit your child's screen time? And I was like, no, I, you know, I, I engage with what he's specifically doing. Like, I don't limit his page time. Uh-huh. I just choose whether, like, he's reading a book or a magazine or whether it's something that's, like, a bunch of, like, you know, he's five years old, so he likes poop jokes. But, like, you can, like, how much of that and how much of, like, smart stuff? Yeah. Um, and so, like, the idea that they're both on pages and are therefore equivalent is absurd. And yet we talk about screen time that way. I'm like, is he playing chess on the iPad or is he like watching funny YouTube videos of animals falling over, right? Which is also awesome, but different. And, and so that really, that always sticks with me because I think it's a very unsophisticated way to look at things. And then we carry that for, and that's when they're very, very young, right? Two, three, four, five. Um, they first start seeing screens and, you know, and my son maybe spends 15 minutes a day on the iPad and he loves it. And that's all he gets. But that's mm-hmm. always been the rule for him, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I limit it mostly because we just limit everything. I mean, you just don't let a five-year-old do whatever they want or you end up in hell. Right, so you just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's just... Are you saying, so, okay, this is a radical idea. You apply the same wisdom you apply to other things, to yeah. technology? Yeah. Well, that's, well and that's the thing. It's, like, it's part of your life. I think that right. was the thing. Is I, I saw so many parents, and this is not like judgment. I don't judge other parents. Other parents are no, fine. No, we're all on this frontier. But, but we're as we're figuring language. it out, they yeah. treat it as if there is life. They said, it's like, this is real life, and then there's computer world. Right. And I'm like, that's not the thing. Like, that's not how their lives are going to be. Yeah. And, and, I think, and I think I had an unusual perspective in that I did start using computers you know, before I was in kindergarten, just as my son has. And um, he is, you know, he has way better programming tools. I was like, gosh, if I had these things, like he's got, I guess we had to do these like, you know, primitive blocky green graphics on the screen when I was a kid. And he's got like a Star Wars robot that he can go on the iPad and give it programming instructions and it follows his directions to roll around the living room. And I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like you wait until they go to bed so you can play with it, you know? Um, and that's, no, he's going to listen to this, I bet. So I don't do that. I don't do that. Um, but the, the, the thing that I, I think about is the, um, that's part of his life. It's not uh, over there. It's not an artifice. It's not the virtual world, right? It's just life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about that with so many experiences where when we were fighting for validating social media and social networking, saying these would be important, these would be part of our lives, and there's a reason to include it. It was about this idea that sharing makes something better. I I fully reject the argument, people say this all the time, you know, I saw this young person in a restaurant on their own, on their phone, not interacting with anyone. What do you think they were doing? They were talking (laughs) to people. (laughs) They were interacting with lots of humans all at once. And it makes me furious because I'm saying they're being deeply social. It's not in the mode that you know, 
but it's actually better than when they were sitting alone at the diner with a book. Yeah. Right. And and like I think there's been this mis understanding and this misapprehension mm -hmm. about what the tech is doing. It is connecting us to people. And, and you know, there's so much attention paid in with good reason to the bullying and the other things, the cyber bullying and all this. And a general rule of thumb is anything that begins with cyber is a lie, right? Like if you say cyber bullying or cyber crime, like it was probably, that's one of those rare areas where they, it's a behavior that existed before and the cyber is not the issue. Right, so children right. being unkind Nothing to each other. Nothing happens online that doesn't happen offline. Right, and yeah. so and so being able to integrate it now, it can be worse because of the network effects. Mm -hmm. It could be amplified mm -hmm. by the immediacy and the fact mm -hmm. that it happens in your home. But the principles can carry mm -hmm. across, and it has to be an integrated conversation. And that's the right. that's the key. It's like how much time do you limit your child talking to their friends? I don't care if it's on the phone, on the on the computer, on messaging, on their on you know in real life, in person, out in public, whatever it is. If you have a set of rules, they apply across these things. But that demands a literacy and a fluency that I think is takes a serious investment in time and understanding your child's context, and that's the hard part. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Anil Dash, the entrepreneur and activist for humane technology. This matter of technology and social healing, technology and weaving common life, um, when I see you writing about this, I see one thing you do, which is again related to what you just said, is you point people to analog places close to home. Yeah, I try. Mm -hmm. We're still, you know, sounding our way through this incorporation of technology into our lives. And there are historical analogs for a lot of these things. There are things we can look back at. And the, and the trick is to identify where, where does the analog apply and where is it irrelevant. And... And that line keeps shifting, especially as we learn more about the behaviors. I think, um, you know, it always does come down to what are our values and what do we care about and what are the things we think are meaningful. And then using that as a filter to understand and, and control and make decisions around these new technologies. But um, those of us in the tech world have not done ordinary folks any favors around making those decisions because we've... Um, adopted this stance that values don't apply. And um, that's, that's part of the reckoning I'd ask everybody who's not in technology to have is to, um, is to raise that flag, right? At the time when somebody says, you gotta try this new app, you gotta use this new tool, um, think through what are the implications of, one, me using this, but two, if everybody does. You know, I, I look at, um, and I don't know, just to pick one out of the hat, like Uber, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, you should try Uber and it'll get you a car service. And, it's something I've thought really deeply about living in New York, uh, being of Indian descent in particular, like what happens to taxi drivers is very personal to me. And we have a community in Queens, Jackson Heights, where it's um, enormous number of uh, South Asian immigrants. And somewhere, I, I don't remember the number, it was like 20% or something of households make some of their income from driving, right? And livery drivers, taxi drivers. And, you know, there were a lot of 
obviously like the taxi industry is also corrupt in its own way, right? So like mm, not yeah. diminishing the challenges there, but that, you know, Uber has said, we're going to bring you in, make you a driver and have essentially full control over what your income is and how many fares you get using an algorithm that's opaque to you is terrifying. And then once they got the drivers on board, there are now more Uber drivers in New York City than there are yellow cabs. They said, by the way, we're going to wow. replace you all with self-driving cars as fast as we can. Um, and that's going to happen. And this is a, a crash we can see coming. But that's the one we know, we anticipate. Fortunately, what you're asking people to do is think. Yeah. But, but these, and these are like, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean. And that's it. And these are off the top of my head, right? These yeah. are the ones on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. So, and I've talked, over the years, I've had conversations with people like Sherry Turkle and Dana Boyd and, mm -hmm. and Tiffany Shalane. You know, mm -hmm. this idea that um, it's very hard for us to internalize. Because we feel like this technology has landed on us and taken over our lives, mm -hmm. permeated, and it has. It but has we have a choice, and our right. choices matter. And, that the, and to, to, to internalize that, that this technology is in its, in its infancy, and we are the grown-ups in the room. Yes, yes, 100%. It is 100% up to us. It doesn't feel like that, but it's true. It doesn't. And we can ask those questions, right? Mm -hmm. when, when somebody says, try out this new app, it doesn't take very long to say, well, what happens if this works? Everybody in the Valley... They get their company funded, they make a startup, and they say, well, you know, we want to, desperately don't want to fail. And I'm like, I'm not worried about the failures. I'm worried about the companies that succeed. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be the obligation of the rest of us that care about these issues to really deeply interrogate that whenever we can. Mm -hmm. Your um, wildly successful Twitter Feed. Your 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 Adil Dash. Your name is Rap Game Bodhi Rook. Right now it is. Yeah, it changes okay. a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I, but I love your. Um, you know, you, you just say in your profile. I love reading Twitter profiles. I think mm. that is such a beautiful slice of humanity. Mm. Um, at least the ones I read. Um, <laughs> trying to make tech a little bit more humane and ethical. Um, I once interviewed a French geophysicist, who one of the people who discovered tectonic plates, mm. and he pointed out that the word human in French is the same as the word humane. Mm. I don't know why I thought of that when I was reading this. I, um, hmm. I want to ask you how your, this life you've lived, these, uh, these obsessions you have, which mm -hmm. I think everybody in this room is grateful you are out there having these obsessions. Um, how would you start to talk about how this has evolved the way you think about what it means to be human, humane? Mm. What, what does that mean? Um, you know, I describe myself as being in the technology industry, but technology always means things invented after you're, you know, born, basically. And so there was a time when the technology industry was the wheel, right? And there was a time when the, the technology industry was fire, and, and it's every iteration along the way has been, you know, the first people to do agriculture, we're the technologists of their time. And so understanding that context of this is only temporarily new has been really, really helpful for me. And I think, and I guess especially true again since becoming a parent, but just in general, the, like marveling at the, the briefness of the time we have, and I think how lucky, right, to be at this genesis moment for something actually new. Mm -hmm. right? How rare to be at a time when things changed, even with all of the negatives that come and all the hard problems that come. And all the risk there always is there when change yeah. comes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and of course, I know how fortunate I am to be on the 
the right side of those mm-hmm. changes. I think, um, you know, my parents are from one of the poorest and most remote parts of India. My dad's village today, a family of four around that area lives on between six and $800 a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the quality of life improvement from my father growing up as a British subject with no vaccines and no clean running water to my son living in Manhattan is perhaps the greatest single generation leap in quality of life in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so that weighs on me a lot to be bookended by these two incredible people, like my parents on one end and my son on the other. Um, it, it feels like a grave responsibility, mm-hmm. right? To get to be the conduit between you know, the greatness of what my parents have done and the greatness my son will do, I think is the, the thing I think about every day. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's well, I have these tools, and and they're novel now, and they will be boring very soon, you know. And so, on route to them being boring, how can I be sure that they are just? Neil Dash is the CEO of Fog Creek Software. He also founded MakerBase and Activate and Expert Labs, a nonprofit research initiative backed by the MacArthur Foundation and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which collaborated with the Obama White House and federal agencies. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, and Selena Carlson. Special thanks this week to Richard Marks, Amy Haynes, and Kathy Bozen at the Dock Street Foundation, Judy Price at the Aspen Institute Y Fellows, and Austin Carter, Susie Moore, and all of the fabulous staff at the Avalon Theater. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.